I was hoping to get up here before everybody sat down. <laughs> Please rise in body or spirit for the reading of the gospel. The gospel according to Luke chapter 2 verses 22 to 35. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For mine eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for the glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. This is the word of God for the people of God. Praise be to God. Uh, the uh, kids can now go to uh, Kid Zone with Brenda. Now let the little servants depart in peace. I've uh, given a lot of lectures in my lifetime. It's part of my job and I've been doing it for over 40 years. Typically the talks range from 45 minutes to well over an hour and a half. If you think Adam's sermons are long, you should come to some of my lectures. As uh, Don Gesford could verify at the beginning of the lectures, it's customary to introduce me by presenting my credentials, followed by a disclosure of any competing interests that may introduce unjustified biases into the lecture. In other words, the introduction is to explain why anyone should listen to me and what I gain from your attention. So let's handle the second question first. What do I gain from your attention? Nothing. I am neither selling anything nor soliciting funds for any purpose no royalties, no honoraria or payments, no advertising, no foundation to promote. The answer to the first question, 
why should anyone listen to what I had to say, is just as clear, but troubling. I have no credentials for standing before you. I am not anointed by God to do this. I have no training in theology. I'm not ordained. I'm not even a licensed pastor, elder, or deacon. I'm just like you. We read and we think. That, however, can be very dangerous. Therefore, the only proper way for me to proceed is to let the scriptures speak instead. God gave us a wonderful gift in the scriptures, for they are God's message to us about who he is, who we are, and what he has done for us, and how we are to respond. It would be a very bad idea for me to try to edit his message. Therefore, let us ask God to open our ears to his word. O oh God, our Father, we thank you for speaking to us through the Bible. We confess that we have not listened carefully to what you have to say. Speak to us again through your word. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The section of God's message that I've chosen for today is the story of our Lord's presentation at the temple. It's a familiar story to many of us. Still, I don't remember um, hear, hearing uh, any sermons on this. That's not to say there weren't any. I just don't remember them. Hopefully after today, you won't say the same thing. But I probably remember the story from Sunday school lessons I heard as a kid in Rexmont. And I think it went like this. Mary and Joseph took the newborn Jesus into the temple around the time when he was circumcised. They were broke, so they paid two doves for the temple services. While they were there, a geezer, oh, maybe 67 years old, uh, named Simeon, who hung around the temple, came up to them. Jesus was probably the 15th kid that he checked on that day. He said a few words to them, then was allowed to die. End of story. <laughs> Not much to it. Well, I was wrong. By the end of today's service, I hope I will have persuaded you that I was spectacularly wrong about almost everything. So what really is the story? Well, it starts in Exodus. As soon as the Lord had brought the Israelites out of Egypt, he claimed ownership of every firstborn male, human or other animal. He could have destroyed them as he did with the Egyptians, but instead he spared them, making them his. Each firstborn male was to be consecrated to God. Parents were required to redeem them, their son, with an offering to the Lord. Additionally, as it says in Leviticus, any woman who gave birth to a son would be ceremonially unclean for 41 days. 
At the end of that time, she was to bring to the tabernacle a lamb for a burnt offering, doves or pigeons if she couldn't afford a lamb, and a pigeon or dove for a sin offering. That means that Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple when he was about six weeks old, probably giving Mary about five or six hours of sleep on a good night. Along that same line, don't you think that the second verse in a way in a manger is kind of silly? But little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. It has no scriptural basis. It's not even logical. Our Lord was fully human, so it's likely that he did cry as a newborn. And if we have proof that he cried as an adult, why should we think that he didn't cry as a baby? Anyway, let's move on from there. While they were in the temple, this guy named Simeon shows up. Luke gives us some background on him. Simeon lived in Jerusalem and was described as righteous and devout. Luke doesn't say how old he was. He could have been 25, for all we know. Even more importantly, the Holy Spirit was on him, and he told him that he would not die before he had seen the Messiah, the consolation of Israel revealed in Isaiah 40. Think about how that must have felt, to be told that you would see the Lord's anointed. But that raises a bunch of questions. When would he see him? And for how long? And how close would he get? Close enough to talk with him? And would he know him when he saw him? And where would he see him? In the street? In the temple? In the shuk? In the palace? As usual, the Holy Spirit answered Simeon's questions in due time. Luke writes that the Spirit moved Simeon to go into the temple courts that day, implying that he didn't go there every day. So I was wrong about that one, too. It was a special day. It was the day. I wonder how he dressed. Did he wear a coat and tie? Or was he wearing jeans and a t-shirt? Somehow, someway, Simeon found Mary, Joseph, and Jesus in the temple. How did that happen? I'm assuming the Holy Spirit told him which one was Israel's consolation. What was he thinking while the Spirit remained silent on the day? Did he ask, is this the guy? The tall, strong one in the corner? Or maybe that guy, he looks like a comforter. Eventually, the Spirit took him to Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. That man can't be the one. He looks like a laborer. Look at how they're dressed. He's the one you've been keeping me alive to see? Wait, what? It's not the man, it's the baby? There must be some mistake. You can't be serious. Actually, the Holy Spirit was quite serious. Think about how the situation was. Mary and Joseph are in the temple courts to fulfill their obligation when some stranger comes up and asks to hold their child. It gets weirder still. 
While holding the kid, Simeon praises God. Then he drops the mic. It's over. He said, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. He went on to say why. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. He's looking at, he's holding in his arms, the six-week-old consolation of Israel, who probably couldn't even hold his head straight. All while channeling Isaiah's prophecies. It's no wonder Luke wrote that Mary and Joseph marveled at what, he, what was said about Jesus. Simeon went on to bless the family, then unloaded some prophecies of his own. He foretold Jesus' role in causing the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. In other words, the ultimate litmus test. Then lastly, Simeon's talk darkened when he told Mary of the grief she must bear. At that point, Simeon walks off the stage of Luke's narrative. So why is this story here? Time after time, I'm struck by how deep, how layered, how meaningful is the word of God. The Apostle Paul recognized it. In Romans, he goes off on this riff. He says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. When I read even simple stories like this one, I need to ask, what is God's word trying to get through my lazy, passive, sentimental mind? To answer these questions, I'm going to ask you to think like a doctor, just for a short time. Why? Paul refers to Luke as the doctor, not a doctor. The doctor. As I'm sure you've seen from time to time, doctors hate to lose arguments or debates or even discussions. We love to center our arguments on evidence. Evidence-based medicine is one of our, the pillars of our profession. Always has been, even in Luke's day. But we also somewhat tiresomely expound on evidence-based finances, evidence-based auto repair, evidence-based sports, evidence-based laundry, evidence-based deer hunting, evidence-based lawn mowing. I could go on, but I think you have the idea. And if you don't believe me, just ask Joy after the service. <laughs> now, keeping that idea in mind, let's look at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Luke introduces his paper by writing that many have attempted to write gospels based on what they were told by people who actually saw the events as they unfolded. He then goes on to reveal his doctorishness, if that's a word, by writing, since I myself have carefully investigated, see what I mean? Everything 
everything, it gets worse. From the beginning, even worse. I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you. Now, let's hit the pause button here. The word orderly is an important word. What he is saying is that not only did he take the time to compile the stories, but to lay them out in a particular way. Luke is the only New Testament writer to use this Greek adjective translated as orderly. And if you look at the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, no one else uses that word either. So what was the order? Chronological? Alphabetical? Topical? To answer this question, you need to step back from Luke's gospel and look at the outline of the book. Chapters 1 to 3 provide the evidence that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. Chapters 4 to 21 detail his ministry and message, and chapters 22 to 24 are the account of his death and resurrection. Think about that first section, and you'll see what I mean. Luke starts off with the special conception and birth of John the Baptist, who will figure later in declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. He follows with Gabriel telling Mary that Jesus is the Messiah. Then the angels tell the shepherds that Jesus is the Messiah. Then it's our hero Simeon's turn. He's an unimpeachable witness, if there ever was one, righteous and devout, remember? Anna comes next. After a gap of about 12 years, the next story is Jesus claiming to be God's son. John the Baptist takes his turn. Then God himself confirms what everyone else has been saying. Evidence from angels, humans, and God. And then, to put the icing on the cake, Luke throws in the genealogy. Evidence. See what I mean? Doctors can be and frequently are exhausting. And the reason the story of Jesus' presentation at the temple is there is because it's a critical piece of the evidence that this guy, Jesus, is the Messiah. But let's let Luke finish telling us the objective of his study. He carefully investigated everything and wrote it down in an orderly account so that we may know the certainty of the things we have been taught. Luke wrote this systematic review, this reference textbook, this up-to-date of God's redeeming work in our world, so that we may know without any doubt who Jesus is. God used Luke to write this wonderful gift for us as encouragement, as comfort, as instruction. Luke compiled this evidence in order to show us the light for revelation to us Gentiles and the glory of God's people, Israel. So what do we take with us on December 26, 2021? I suggest we call Luke's gospel the forensic gospel. It's what he intended, and he wrote it in his own particular style. But he wrote it so that we may know the certainty of the things we have been taught. We forget that, or maybe never noticed. 
Look, I'm just as bad as the rest of you. I like seeing little kids dressed up like sheep or magi. But Luke didn't write the gospel to provide a script for Christmas pageants. There was a much more important purpose so that we may know. The evidence is clearly presented, exhaustingly presented. It's up to each one of us to know the evidence. These are the facts. You can read them for yourself. I encourage you. No, I implore you to leave this place with confidence, knowing the certainty of the things you have been taught. Jesus Christ, whom Simeon held in his arms, has made a way for you, for us, to be at peace with God. We should live that way. And after you leave, find someone who has not heard and show them the evidence. Merry Christmas. Please rise with me in singing the closing hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. <laughs>